0: Hi, everyone. It's Raghu and I'm back with Mind Rolling and uh, a new friend who I just said, you're brand new, but I already know you. Kelly Carlin, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be here.
0: So uh, Kelly has a a great uh, book. It's called A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. I don't think there's anybody out there who doesn't know who George Carlin is, but after reading the book and, uh, and you meeting people, like trying to get a ticket out of Hawaii, right? When your father
2: was passing,
0: so you never know. Uh, yeah. but, but George is an icon and, uh, and it, it, the way in which he told the truth and made us laugh, that combo was uh, unique. In our annals of uh, entertainment for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He his particular brand of truth telling, you know, I, I think of there were others out there certainly prior being another one could make you laugh and speak truth. But Richard's truth was from a slightly different angle, of course. And but yeah, my dad had a way of always saying things that you've, after you he- heard it, you would go, oh my God, I've I've been thinking that forever, but I've never actually even articulated it to myself before.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, there was, I always had a joy when I'd go and see his uh, taping of his specials because he would always blow my mind. Like one thing would completely blow my mind and I'd walk out of the concert in some sort of like heightened state of awareness because he had just opened another door of perception through his insight. Yeah.
0: Mm, yeah. Oh boy. I mean, now we all have difficulties in our lives and we all have a whole pile of dukkha suffering <laughs> that is inimical to our existence as humans. But uh, yeah, you're, you had a, I mean, I thought I had a big pile. Yours was bigger than my pile. I think.
1: <laughs> You know, I think each of our piles are our piles and yeah. it's, it's ours to sort through, you know, and ours to um, use for fertilizer, some of it, and some of it's to you know, you just throw it out and go, I don't need that anymore. And then some of it you hand back, uh, to, to the rightful <laughs> <Yeah>. owner. <laughs> yeah.
0: oh, and, like uh, and,
1: and that of course it happened to me and some, well, it happened in, in gradations, but ultimately when both my parents passed or died, um, I did some work around handing it back, handing their piece back to them, kind mm. of back to the, the the mother line and the father line. Like, this isn't mine. I don't know why I'm carrying this around. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, I had others who were born in the early to mid sixties and had parents who jumped, uh, headfirst into the counterculture. Um, also you know, I've I've met a lot of us out there. We are we were raised by wolves. Uh kind, loving, insightful, funny, creative wolves, but nonetheless um left to raise ourselves in many ways. And um so that that was a, a piece of it for me was addiction and alcoholism. And then the other piece is that strange visitor I call fame. <laughs> that mm. really um does a job on you uh, growing up in the shadow of that without you even realizing it uh, until you wake up one day and see it for what it is. But uh, that's a weird one too. That's a weird one too.
0: Yeah. And it's well spelled out in the book
1: Mm -hmm. uh, in
0: all of its uh, light and shadow. Yeah. But you know, one thing throughout the book and especially through, you know, your parents did get cleaned up after some time, quite some time. But um, even in the midst of it all, and you—you you had a family that had love. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. a huge difference. I mean, I—I I would say I have a similar thing with, uh, in particular, my father, who was very tyrannical, and uh, it was a huge issue for me, and uh, certainly created a large part of the story I tell myself on a day-to-day and act out still. But there was love. And I know other people where that's not the case, that there was so radical self-interest on, on the parent's side that uh that did really did not exist. Uh, and for you, talk about it, uh, just in terms of the kind of unit you had with your mother and father. Was yeah, wild.
1: Yeah, there... I was lucky in that way that foundationally I knew I belonged somewhere and uh, I was an only child. And so from almost day one, I went on the road with my parents. My dad was a starving comedian, a starving artist. And my mom was part of the the team. Uh, they were starving artists, comrade in arms. And we were the three musketeers. My dad called us the three musketeers. And they put me in a little bassinet in the backseat of the Dodge Dart. And we went off to, um, you know, hell gigs, as they call them in the business, where my dad made, you know, seven bucks a night. And sometimes there weren't even people in the audience. Seven <laughs> dollars?
0: Really? You're not exaggerating.
1: <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Oh, my okay. And uh, yeah, they, we were hungry for a long time. And so there was this sense of, of we were in it together. And even during the dark addiction, alcoholism times, after, you know, there'd be a big blow up or something and we, my dad would come bring us together to reconcile and we would all do a big family hug and he'd say, you know, remember we are the three musketeers, you know, uh, all for one, one for all. And so there was a sense of connection and um, that kept me afloat. And, and I did, I felt in that basic way, loved. Uh, and then of course, certainly had to make my own struggle with learning to love myself and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. What I think why we get on the whole spiritual path initially. Mm. Um, And, you know, and had to also learn to feel the betrayal of the addiction and the alcoholism too, you know, there's, it's a mighty beast, those things. And, uh, when they come, when it comes ravaging through the, through the living room or the family, you know, it's, it's a force of nature addiction and, um, and can let, leave you feeling, um, cast out you know, exiled from something. So,
0: yeah. I mean, I love how uh, you have uh, interesting karma, shall we say, because (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we all do, but yours to find what you found a little bit later, not that much later in life, uh, in terms of dealing with yourself and finding yourself and finding the things that were the most important to you and how they all uh, and how your family and and that love kind of aligned with those newfound values. It seemed to me as I read the book. Uh, Now, one of the first things that caught my eye. So there's a number of things in the book that where you quote your father and they're so, uh, they're right in the nexus of, yeah, right that's what that is so there's a few of these things that are just pretty wonderful but um you talk about your father dropping acid now i don't know why that i mean i mean it it you you say in 1969 so then i go back okay so that's around the time i was doing that i guess and uh and i love what he said later which was uh LSD is a value changer values changer yeah talk a little bit about how his what you understood from his experience eventually which was i think really uh contributed a lot to towards the path that you eventually took
1: yeah uh, the way he talked about it certainly was you know he'd always He'd had some connection to growing up in the streets of New York and a real sense of self in some ways, but he had bought into an identity, an idea of who he thought he wanted to be. And his initial dream was to be like Danny Kay. Hmm. You know, I can't think of a squarer guy than Danny Kay. But my dad's, you know, eight-year-old self saw him on the screen and saw his, articulation and his comedic ability and you know my dad was already Danny Kaye in some ways so he was an amazing early child genius with this kind of stuff and so he you know he he took that road he he bought into it he bought into the the suit and the tie and the short hair and and the route to get there like he was trying to get to the place where he could be himself i think that's ultimately mm. isn't i mean isn't that really what we're all doing all the time is Oh, I'll just get on this path. And eventually I'll get to be myself, not thinking we actually have permission today. And in 69, he was getting already personally fed up with being put into a box of the hippy dippy weatherman everywhere he went and dropped a lot of acid that year from what I understand from what I read about it. He never Mm -hmm. like told me, but when I read about it from even in his memoir, um, you know dozens of times and um and it did it uh, it it let him see that he had he was living by false it was false values it was a false self he saw the false self so clearly and saw that he himself wasn't even in his act as an artist he wasn't even an artist he was just an entertainer at that time and he saw that he he wasn't even present And, um, he had some profound awakenings, you know, during some of those trips and we moved to Venice beach pretty, we were in a rental in Beverly Hills and living the perfect kind of life. And then we moved to Venice and he grew his hair out and class clown and FNAM came out and, and he was dropping a lot of acid and they were doing a lot of that stuff down there. And, um, he remembers. T- I remember him telling me, you know, him seeing a tennis shoe in the gutter somewhere, and him knowing that he was no different than even that object. Like he saw that he was everything in the universe, and that if he's everything in the universe, then there is nothing to be afraid of ever. Mm. And oh, wow. yeah, and and I've been talking a lot lately, and actually was talking today with some people about this idea of belonging,
2: mm.
1: and that just by being a sentient being or even you know the non-sentient beings around us and, and the objects around us but just by being here we belong and and i think that's what he was saying and um and that you know that that values changing thing it's like a new lens comes up and now you're like oh oh now i see what's real yeah and and gave him the courage to take that next step, to grow his hair out, to speak from his own self. And that's what his F.M.A.M. album was about, because the first side was AM, which was the version of him that he was. But he wanted to introduce his audience in a really beautiful way. It's such a profoundly conscious way he did this as an artist. And mm-hmm. on the AM side was the hippy-dippy weatherman and the Indian sergeant and all the bits he'd been doing on the tonight show and sullivan and all of those tv shows that he was known for and then on the fm side he introduces himself to the audience with routines about his neighborhood and about language and and stuff and it just this clever as always beautiful personal introduction to this transformation he had this internal transformation he'd had
0: well at that time when that was happening the FM part uh, with him and the long hair and everything and uh, talk about belonging. So myself, I felt, okay, this is, he's kindred. Okay. George is kindred. He was like family just because he was just in the same way. Like for me, I got saved. I was a miserable teenager and getting terrorized, but I got saved by Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan just, because okay he was expressing the angst he was expressing the anxiety he was expressing what was deep down in us what in the hell are we doing here this is nuts yeah. and and george fits in that uh, right on right yeah. on you know and talk about belonging because that's what we didn't have uh i think um you know duncan trussell i think good yes. good friend yeah
2: yeah, yeah.
0: And um, so he and I have been talking about this a lot. We do podcasts together at different times. He comes to these retreats in in Maui. Um, And and we've been talking about just this kind of, uh, the thing that binds us and takes us into a place where we're able to get spacious enough not to believe in these stories that we're telling ourselves.
1: Yes. Yeah. There has to be a bigger matrix, a bigger story than our narrower stories, our personal stories. And, and I think it's a process. I think you have to, A, get awakened to that there is a story going on. Like, oh, I'm living out a story and I'm telling myself the story over and over again. And it's limiting my potential or it's creating anxiety and depression or whatever it is um so that's like an important part of the process is owning your story and in order for me to write my memoir and do my solo show I had to do that work I had to own my story and sometimes in owning our story we have to you know own our rage and own our pity and own our victimhood like be be able to say fuck man fucked up shit happened to me but then at some point you have to go and so now, what? and I know for me that's that searching that meaning, like what is the bigger meaning in it all, and how do I fit into this bigger meaning, and how do I belong in the bigger story you know that's that's where the seeking mind, the curiosity the the there's got to be more than just this family drama going on
0: <laughs> or they've got to be more than what's in my head that i yeah. believe in yeah. way more
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah.
1: yeah yeah and and then doing the you know the dance with all of that which is god no god <laughs> non-god self no self uh archetypes you know i mean i I, then you just start walking through it all and trying to sort sort through all the concepts and the ideas and hopefully get to have a few experiences that make you go oh okay yeah i get
0: it everybody (laughs) has so so everybody and it's it's, we just don't have a way in this culture to support those experiences yeah Uh, we just um and in fact, you're thought to be crazy if you've had any, you know, out of body experiences or anything like that. Yep. Um, so.
1: Or yeah. a sucker. You're a sucker. Yeah. That's the other one. That's the yeah. atheist skeptic perspective, which yeah. is you're just a sucker uh, falling for something and you're just living in fantasy or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah.
0: Sharon Salisbury, you know, who Sharon is. Yeah. Sharon yeah. I know Sharon. I've she's, met her a few times. Oh uh, yeah. She's wonderful. And she, yeah. so we do a lot of stuff together and, uh, we were talking, she was in a talk talking about love and it was about Ramdas. as you know, how much we're involved with him. I am, um, and have been since we don't even want to say, <laughs> uh, but, um, it was about unconditional love and she's just talking about, well, love, just forget anything, just love that feeling, that emotion, um now people will get after you and go okay like they that's especially buddhists <laughs> so they will say that's weak mm-hmm. okay because you're living for for them it's of course you're living in subject object and you got to cut through that which is the whole thing of of zen which i know you're that's very much part of your life at this point um by the way i love this thing that happened to me Nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I'm thinking about it. Well, a little bit to do, but um, I did a podcast with Roshi Joan Halifax, uh, a Zen abbot, right?
1: I've been to Upaya. Oh, oh you God.
0: have? Oh, okay. Yes. So you know, and yes. she's like, take no prisoners at all, <laughs> yes. ever, you know, kind of attitude. And uh, we were doing this thing. I actually, I asked her because she's been so close to Ramdas forever, And they're always joking back and forth about that self, no self, and soul, no, you know, all of that. And it means nothing because there's so much love alive in in the room when you're with them. It's extraordinary, actually. And so, due to that, I've spent some time with her. And I said to her, you know, yeah, you're close to Ramdas and you've seen, he talks about his guru all the time, Ninkaroli Baba Maharaji, our guru. what do you think of him? You know, being that your path is the path of Zen Buddhism. And she says, When I look in his eyes in the picture, I see emptiness. And it, it, she had been and done a thing with Ramdas where he recalled himself that and said, I just looked in those eyes and it was empty. Empty of the little guy self. That's right. <laughs> really what we're talking about. So, so we commiserated over that. That was a beautiful moment.
2: Mm.
0: And then, and then she says, but you know, it, this path is eventually, you have to cut through the subject objects thingy. She didn't quite say it like that. (laughs) And I said, Roshi, I know, you probably had about a billion more lifetimes with me. I'm hanging on for dear life to that blanket on that Baba." Okay. She (laughs) laughed like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, It's interesting because I've been having some experiences lately um, working with this dream tending work. I work with this gentleman, Stephen Eisenstadt, who started Pacifica Graduate Institute. And he's worked with, you know, he was a student of Joseph Campbell's and James Hillman. It's all archetypal imaginal psychology. And in this work, uh, when image, dream image comes in, figure or landscape, it's um it's about being in relationship with it and it be, having autonomy and independence and doing like what Jung used to call active imagination. so I'm doing this work for over a year now, and how I'm kind of putting it in the matrix of everything that I've already done, and it's interesting you brought up Ram Das and his guru because you know twenty years ago I would listen to Ram Das's tapes and he would talk about his guru, and I would kind of like be like can't i don't i I don't know, I just don't know. I'm fascinated by it, but I don't understand it. I haven't had that experience yeah. and and then, like you know, the kind of the skeptic atheist part of me looks in and totally rolls my eyes like magical thinking time going on. Mm-hmm. but I have to say, after doing this dream tending work and being in conscious relationship with figures, imaginal figures um both through dream tending and through shamanic journeying stuff what I'm getting about it is that it is not subject object actually, because you're not in the ego self when you're in relationship with these figures. Uh, You're in a matrix and you're just a witnessing participant in it. And ego must move out of the way for you actually to be in true relationship with it, to let them have autonomy and independence. Uh, And I was actually thinking about Ram Dass last week, thinking like, Oh, I think I get this now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like not a not a full experience of it, but I'm like, I think I get that mm-hmm. it's 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 not Ram Das's ego having a relationship with his guru, it's his soul having a relationship with the his guru soul, you know, or something. I don't I mean, you can't put words <laughs> to this stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You just did a great job, Kelly. I don't care. I'm going to have this extracted out of here and I'm going to show it. I'm going to type it, get somebody to show it to Ramdas. Okay. Well, I'll see him in a week. So I'll show it to myself. And then let
1: me know if I'm I'm on the right path.
0: (laughs) You are. You are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course it encompasses everything, including that part of us that is, uh, shall we say challenged. That's all there as well. Yeah. You know, you know what I love though? It, this is my favorite thing in the book, but not really, you know, you say this about it, but it made me laugh so hard. Like your father was looking for blow, right? And where does he where did he stash it? He stashed it and Be Here Now. He goes, Oh right, Ramdas, be here now. Is that real? That, I mean, come on.
1: My memory of it is I don't remember what book it was stashed in but when I but I remember be here now was on our coffee table 24/7 and I remember as a kid looking at the book. And so when I couldn't remember I used yeah a little dramatic fun theatrical license with that with moments like that. Mm. But I thought it would be fun to put it in that book <laughs> because why not? I mean, you know, uh and and Ram Dass was there. He was on our Frickin' coffee table through <laughs> all of it. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, another, I know somebody who's uh, maybe, I don't know how well you knew him, but he appears and he's somebody we love too, Gary Shandling.
1: Uh, he was I a think, dear friend of
0: mine. Yeah. Yeah. So one time, Gary, not that long ago, not yeah. maybe within two years before Gary died. Uh, Judd Apatow wanted to talk to Ramdas, so we arranged this a, uh, a Skype thing, and uh, and Judd, I think what happened is Gary called Judd. I think Judd told us this. He said, "Well, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm going to be doing a Skype with Ramdas." He says, "And you didn't invite me. I want to come." <laughs> so he came over. You know, like uh, Gary was a mentor to Judd yes. Apatow. And a close friend
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh and so we did this incredible skype thing which uh judd included in the gary shandling yeah and,
1: there's a there's a small the dvd of, in in yeah. the uh it's in the documentary the full yeah. documentary too yeah but then
0: he put the whole thing on the oh, dvd
1: we did. Oh, yeah. okay, I'm gonna have although DVD
0: he, he never sent me one. I got to get that <laughs> uh but uh there's just this beautiful part in it um, well you you saw it i think this part's in it where, maybe not though um, where he gets on gary hi ramdas he says uh do you know who i am so sweetly like with no airs whatsoever and ramdas goes gary i know who you are <laughs> that was worth the price of admission for you. <laughs> Oh, he's so great what a what a great uh, person yeah and Gary. talent it's my favorite show the gary show you know the uh interview fake interview show whatever.
1: yeah he um he came to my dad's memorial i didn't know Gary mm. before my dad died and he right away was one of a few comedians who said to me i'm family and i'm here for you and gary was the one person i could go to and kind of unpack my dad's stuff in a private way that I wasn't ready to unpack publicly, um, my own struggling with it. Um, I mean, obviously I missed my dad dearly. Um, but my, my struggling with finding who I was outside of this relationship now. And, um, and so Gary was a steady, steady person for me and he and I did not know he was a practicing Buddhist until I met him and we started talking about it. And, um, he didn't really share that publicly, and I'm really mm-hmm. glad that Judd brought that side to Gary to the world because Gary was um such a a questioner about everything and uh he was he was a mentor and a friend and might like you know this Zen voice would you know he just and then he would be so absurd and funny and <laughs> And but, neurotic, like as yeah, as neurotic yeah. Jew as possible. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. All the way.
1: Oh totally. All the way. <laughs> he owned it all. He played all the keys. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But you know, he was a real practitioner, my he understanding. He I was. Mean, he, he was really sat. He, he really sat. And he
1: and he um you know, when Thich Nhat Hans community wanted to buy property here in California for their other their in America thing, he he donated the land to them really wow. he did
0: that's yeah. generous that's
1: yeah truly amazing
0: um of course the other uh he's not that much in the book richard Pryor, but he's kind of throughout the book in a way uh because of the i mean for me they were parallel i mean there yeah. were people i looked to and went okay yeah truth yeah. sayers um I want to just read this one thing you put in the book, which is from uh, George at uh, Carnegie Hall. It has to do with Richard. It's is funny. I would like to bring you up to date on the comedian's health sweepstakes as it stands now. I lead Richard Pryor in heart attacks, two to one. However, Richard still leads me one to nothing on burning yourself up. <laughs> well, the way it happened was first Richard had a heart attack. Then I had a heart attack. Then Richard burned himself up. Then I said, fuck it. I'm gonna have another heart attack. <laughs> oh god. It's so genius. Want, you know what? Can I mean we're in the middle of a podcast, so I'm gonna ask you this. So I don't care. Can we play a little something of George, a clip or something?
1: Please, yeah, go ahead. Yeah? Of course.
0: Okay. We're, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do it then.
1: I okay. love that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Dad would be happy with that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh so great. I don't have a nice
3: day anymore. I don't bother much with that. I think I'm beyond that now. I think I've outgrown the nice day. I think I've had my share. Why should I be hogging all the really nice ones? Let somebody else have a few. Of course, everybody still wants me to have one. Everybody wants me to have a nice day. Have a nice day! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to give me my fucking change, please? I'm Triple parked. Some of them are really insistent. I said have a nice day! All right, all right, goddamn it, all right, I'll give it a shot. That's the trouble with have a nice day. It puts all the pressure on you. Now you've got to go out and somehow manage to have a good time. All because of some loose-lipped cashier. Have a nice day. Maybe I don't feel like having a nice day. Maybe just maybe I've had hundred and sixteen nice days in a row and I'm ready by God for a crappy day. i never hear that. Let him wish one of them. Hey, have a crappy day. Thank you and to your wonderful family as well. Crappy day? Hey, that'd be easy. There's no trouble at all. A crappy day? Just get up! <laughs> There's no planning involved for a crappy day. I know what it is that bothers me about that whole thing. It's the word nice. It's just a weak word. Doesn't have a lot of character, you know. Nice! Isn't he nice? <laughs> oh, he is so nice! And she's nice too. Isn't that nice? How nice they are. I don't care for that, you know? It's like fine. Here's another word. How are you? Fine. Bullshit! hair is fine. How's your hair? Fine. That makes a lot more sense to me. Some guys are great. You will meet those guys? Great. Isn't this great? God damn, this is great. Look, they're going to kill that guy. Isn't that great? That's great. No, not me, I'm not nice, I'm not fine, I'm not great. People ask me how I am, I say I'm fairly decent. I don't give them any superlatives, nothing to gossip about, relatively okay. Sometimes I'll say, I'm moderately neato. If I'm in a particularly jaunty mood, I'll say, I'm not unwell, thank you. That pisses them off, because they have to figure that one out for themselves.
0: Am I off or maybe a first, not, I don't know, awakening's too weighty a word here, but but there was something around Shirley MacLaine and her book, Out in a Limb, that did something for you, right? What yeah. What happened there?
1: Yeah. Uh, I was... Um... Well, you know, it's that thing where I was such a seeker. I was at my mom and I and my friend Teresa, we were at that Bodhi tree bookstore in LA. I love
0: that. That's the worst (laughs) thing that happened in LA when that went away.
1: Heartbreaking. Uh, They're just voraciously new aging my way through my (laughs) twenties, trying to find answers, trying to find my feet on the ground really. And, and then that Shirley MacLaine book happened. And, um, you know, uh, sh- sh- she, was out there, you know, and yet it was Wait. like, Oh my God, I want to have some of these experiences and these things. And, um, and then, you know, so she becomes like this, this icon of seeking person for me and fascinated by her and, and then I go to the American comedy awards and my dad's like said, Oh, Shirley MacLaine's here. And I want to introduce you. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> the goddess is in the house. <laughs> and we go and we go over and they, I don't realize that, you know, those funny little glasses and they had all these like little props on the tables at the American comedy awards. And one of them was those glasses with the nose and the fake mustache. And I've, I've put them on my forehead like this, you know, and I don't even know that they're on my forehead. And and it was just one of those moments where I'm like, oh, Shirley, hello, hello, hello. And then I walk away and I realize I have these glasses on my forehead. <laughs> and I think, oh, oh, humility. <laughs> mm. Instantly. But yeah, she was that, you know, she, or she was one of those first people who um, got me interested in, seeking, but it was that kind of seeking of like, oh help me out of my hell. Please just bring me to the light. I don't need any, I don't want any shadow. I don't want to deal with the hell. I just want to go towards the light and towards peace and being and beauty and all of that, which yeah. I think is an, an initial pull for most people or uh, for a lot of people in their spiritual life, you know. Um and uh so yeah. And then and then my mom died and uh a whole nother consciousness came into my being and i had a quite an awakening on the day of my mother's funeral
0: mm, talk uh, about that
1: yeah it was i had always imagined when my mother died that i would i would lose my mind i thought that i would absolutely like they'd have to drug me or put me in a room for a little while and um the whole week but especially the day of my mother's memorial I was so in my body like I had never been my entire life I was so calm I was so connected and I was holding the space for family and dear friends my mother was an AA sponsor and had a lot of people that she had been the mother to and she was a healer a natural healer and a natural kind of shamanic energy without any training or anything and um I was suddenly holding the space for everyone and just felt an enormous amount of love and joy in my body mm-hmm. that I, I mean, I still tell people that that day was one of the most beautiful days of my life. I, I met, I met some sort of love consciousness that day. I, I got, and and I talked about it in her memorial when I got up there, I talked about how Joseph Campbell talks about how you have to um you know joyfully be with the sorrows of the world and there was this real sudden holding the tension of the opposites and being in the polarity of the deepest loss and grief I'd ever had in my life A, half my body had been cut off it felt like and yet here I was in an extreme state of unconditional love and grace um and my mother, the day after she died, she came to me in the shower and put her arms around me. And I'd never had an experience like that. And I called it my Shirley McLean experience. Mm-hmm. But I remember jumping out of the shower after my mother had come to me and said to me, you're going to be okay. Um, I was in my parents' house and I threw some clothes on and I ran across the, the, the house to tell my dad. <laughs> and my dad says... Man, cool shit, like that never happens to me. He was so <laughs> jealous that I'd had this experience, but you know and and I didn't understand it. um, I understand it more now, but I just knew that I'd had this experience, and i couldn't it was real. It was as real as the chair I'm sitting on, my mother um so something happened to me that week uh, around the loss and and I really do believe that loss profound loss like that can. Be such a gift of awakening because it can you meet you meet some sense of yourself that you've never met before, and I think it's a wider, bigger, more connected sense of self that's grounded in that bigger matrix we were talking about earlier and that's really when my that's when I really decided to start walking on a path, and I ended up going to a Thich not Han retreat about four months later, yeah,
0: but So many people, of course, we all, I mean, many of us, of course, our parents are going to die, and we come to that moment. Uh, But the way in which the moment uh, expressed itself to you is very unique Mm -hmm. and speaks again to, as I mentioned, you have pretty interesting karma. It speaks to that. Yeah. And, and that's another word, of course, it's another woohoo thing, because it's not something we can understand with rational mind. But just just the idea of all of the events, not from just this life, I mean, as if you're a believer in karma and reincarn- uh, reincarnation, but for many lives, and certainly how we get developed in this life based on how, what family we landed with and what society and what political system, all of that kind of thing. So, um, for you to um, realize the truth, it sound, this is how it sounds to me. You had a really deep realization of the truth of this is just a body. This is not who we are. And the, the thing I have with my mother is beyond these bodies that we had and that thing embraces everyone if you open to it in the moment and somehow you did
1: yeah somehow I did um and yeah whatever this narrative I'm living out and these parents I got and this path I'm on and this I mean like if it's you know however we get here and whatever is the other, I don't, I don't logically know any of it, but, um, yeah, I, I saw beyond the veil. I, I was living for months that way.
2: Mm.
1: Be yeah. with beyond. I was, it was a very liminal space. I was in, uh, it happened after my father died too, for a few months, a very liminal space where the other side was right, so tangible the field what's the way we kind of talk about it that field opens up that morphogenic field in some ways where you can feel and see into it and no matter how rational i want to be or how reasonable or logical that perspective wants to come up and try to explain it away i know what i experienced i know what i lived into and i know the truth that came into my every cell of my body and Uh, I can't deny that. I I can't. I remember I was doing my solo show for an atheist convention.
0: (laughs) That's funny. I don't,
1: it is funny. My director, Paul Prevenz, is friends with a lot of the atheists and Dawkins and all those people. And he's in that world. And, and Paul's a great guy. And you know, he doesn't, he's a very open-minded man. It's a lot of experiences, but he's friends with those people. And he booked my show there. And of course, I always make fun of the atheists because they worship my father. Um, as they worship Richard Dawkins, I always try to let them know, you know, we are worshiping beings at the bottom line, you know, <laughs> we're, we're hardwired for it, baby. Yeah. So, um, but I was really, really worried when I took the show because I was going to talk about some of these things, this experience with my mother and a couple of other things that had happened in my life. And I was very worried that they were just going to shut down. And put me in a box like they like I think they like to do, and gary chandling i was had a lot of anxiety about this show, and Gary said to me, kelly there's a lot of i q in that room, uh but there's not a lot of e q and you bring the emotional intelligence so Bring that to them. They're they're in great need of it. As it, is a, it you know, it's, it's a great gift you're giving to that audience. And so I remember standing backstage, and it was a, a real moment for me as an artist, too, because I know my dad had been on this his own path as an artist, having the courage to speak more and more of his truth. And I really saw this as a crossroads for me as an artist. Like this is my story. No matter what, I felt my mother's arms around me in that shower. I had this experience. Expansive consciousness raising thing that happened because of this. I'm here to tell my story. And I it really helped me claim my, my own experience around it and not having to explain it. And I went out and I did the show. I got a standing ovation, 580 really? standing ovation. <laughs> and then afterwards, I always go out to greet people. And I had grown men sobbing in my arms. Yeah. And so you know yeah i just brought i brought my truth and was not afraid of it and um and and i i'm always in a lot of humility around it because i don't even want to pretend that i really understand any of this stuff and yet i can only know what i know and and treat it with respect so
0: i think george's installation of commitment to truth in your family has a lot to do with this I think because that's a that's the toughest thing of all telling the truth
1: yeah and it's it's been my unpacking these last 10 years since he was gone to to find that for myself and part of it was telling my story finally you know you've read my book you know my dad's resistance to me being more public with my story Because Mm -hmm. of his own angst, his own personal angst around the drug addiction and how it, he felt so guilty and so bad for whatever damage or woundedness that did for me, to me. And um, and he had such a resistance to me telling my story. And yet there's a part of the book where, you know, I'm going to do a solo show and he says, like, I can't be there. And we go to my therapist's office and he says you know, I'm an artist and you're an artist and I'd never tell you what to say or not to say. And so this last 10 years has been me giving myself more and more permission to not only live into my truth, but to be public with it and to talk about it and to come out of the closet over and over and over again about my personal pain and my personal story. But beyond that, it's not really about that. It's about the reality I'm experiencing and seeing and the conversation I want to be having with life with a capital L. And, um, and so, yeah, I've, you know, if there's any shoes that I want to stand in, in my father's shoes, it's Mm -hmm. that, it's that willingness to, to disappoint people with truth in service of their enlightenment <laughs> but having no agenda to it at the same time yeah. like it's not my job to have an agenda yeah. around that
2: yeah, yeah.
1: but my dad would bring a truth in his comedy where you would be like he'd pop your balloon of of you know false belief or the dreaming of the american dream or whatever that was he would he would constantly pop these balloons and you would be disappointed in the moment like oh and then he but but then you'd feel the truth of it and then you'd be you'd be freed by the truth of it. So there's something about that that mm-hmm. I absolutely feel I'm um, I was born into this family for. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There there's a uh there's a wonderful thing in the book actually. It's when uh, your father took you on a helicopter ride mm. in Hawaii around the mm. volcano. And uh right through the center of it and you said its energy was like nothing i'd ever encountered a raw unflinching creation happening right before my eyes my body and mind felt entered by a force beyond anything i had ever imagined i knew i was looking at the ultimate unknown slash known otherness of life itself otherwise known as the big mystery as the pilot made another pass I looked over at my dad and saw that he was holding a small picture of my mom and your mother had died uh, not that long before, angled so that she could see Pele as well, which is so sweet. In that moment, I knew that human love, raw, aching, cut you in half, human love, was part of the same creation that was inside the volcano, that both these forces were equal in their ability to build something up and to cut us in two. And then, just a bursting of love that's a great analogy though i i I have to say i love that little part in the book uh, because the mystery that you describe of what that is the power of it and and the fact that 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 arcs and i have to you know just use unconditional love not the business love that we all have going in our lives Uh, but that unconditional where you don't, you're not looking for anything in return and that purity uh, contained in that, with that analogy of, of uh, Pele, that's really wonderful. Just had to say that. Okay. Thank you.
1: I really, I really appreciate that. It's one of those passages when you write it, you just bow down to the muse because it just pours through you. Yeah.
0: So, I think your experience with Thich Nhat Han in Santa Barbara when you went to the, that that was probably elemental very much maybe like when I went to India and followed Ramdas and met Neem Karoli Baba uh just I think that has to be part of uh, a a big part of what's where you are now and who you are now no
1: Yeah it was a uh a surrendering into community that being an only child and my dad being such a rebel loner artist, not something naturally was, you know, trained Mm. to do or born into do and always being an outsider and going to that retreat in Santa Barbara, it was in 97, the fall of 97. And while we were there, Princess Diana died. It was really just a weird thing. My mom had died only a few months earlier and but it was my coming out as a person, a seeker. I remember mm. being terrified to tell my husband and my dad that I was going to a Buddhist retreat. And they all looked at me like, okay. I'm like, what was what was I so afraid of? It's so funny. The stuff we put into our heads. <laughs> And going there, and there being 1,200 people there, and like them all, you know, everyone, anyone listening has been to a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat as long as sing songy camp songs. And the first day I'm sitting there going, Oh, I don't want to drink the Kool Aid. I'm really <laughs> afraid. And um, very resistant and very judgy. Uh, and then the next morning I went on a walking meditation with Thai and the nuns and the monks and about 600 or 500 people, however many of us walked and doing this. I mean, I'd never, I'd never, I hadn't even done 10 minutes of sitting meditation in my life. I'd listened to Thich Nhat Hanh tapes a couple of times, the guided stuff and never done walking meditation. And I, and we walk through this It's at UCSB and there's this nature reserve and we're walking through the nature reserve, hundreds of us walking meditation And I look over and there's this fox hunting and he's like 50 feet away and he doesn't even notice us. He doesn't even, there's no, we are so part of the fabric of the place and so in it hundreds of us. And I think, wow, (laughs) there's something to this. And, and I think it was about on the fourth day I was, I was singing the songs now. I, I got it. Like I was part of it and I was feeling, you know, there's nothing better than singing with a group of people anyway. Um, but really surrendering into it. And I remember Ty came out and gave a Dharma talk, and I don't even remember what it was about. For 20 minutes, I, I there was an amount of energy coming from him into my body. Um, some sort of transmission was happening. I didn't have any understanding of it. I just thought, I'm. I don't know what's going on um but felt it and uh yeah and then joined a sangha after that uh, a great sangha where we all said you know we're all the type of people who don't belong to groups like every single person in the sangha was an outsider type it was great so it was really perfect and for a good 5 years I was a regular sit on my cushion go to lots of retreats do silent retreats um you know putting th- those hours on the cushion type of person that really helped me settle into my body and, and really get to enter that matrix of love we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And And wrestling with the ego, you know, going on a retreat in the first 24 hours wanting to murder everybody and eat chocolate. And, <laughs> and if anyone had heroin, even though I'd never done it before, I'd probably do it. And then 36 hours in, something cracks open and your heart goes, Bang! and suddenly you're in love with everything and everyone and just watching that myself do that year after year retreats and stuff and thinking wow there's this is i don't understand this but this is interesting
0: so yeah yeah it goes back to the for me the first thing that we talked about that you talked about um the sense of belonging
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um the, the sangha satsang as the hindus call it Uh, this is like the core thing I've been experiencing for years for these last number of years. As we do retreats, we do them here at Ojai actually where I am now and uh, we do them in Maui and now they're going to spread around uh, the country. We hope Um, because, and we do them in India, these uh, pilgrimages to the foothills of the Himalayas where we were with uh, Neem Karoli, Baba Ramdas, me, Krishnas and others. And uh, the same thing, I mean, they're very different in some ways, different teachers, different themes, whatever. But the same thing happens in each one of these. And that is people feeling completely belonging to each other. And I like that. I wouldn't have said that it that way. I would have said uh, a common heart opens up so oh. that everyone can dwell in that heart mm. free and easy without and leave their baggage at the door but uh, that belonging because it gives a sense of deep connection in a family way and that's really what uh, and to me it's the most uh, and as the buddha said when they asked him about taking refuge in the in the buddha the dharma and the sangha what's which is, which is the most important me? of course sangha And uh, for anybody who is, uh, this is all, by the way, I have been saying the same shit here forever, but certainly our paths are so much more lightened Mm -hmm. by our ability to be with each other and know that we are not alone. And these problems of day-to-day that we have mostly to do with our minds, certainly circumstances, financial and otherwise, play a, a major role. Um that's how we ha- we're all in the same boat and that's how we help each other is yeah. through this community. So yeah, very, very uh important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh I was just I've just started reading uh maladoma Somme's work. Do you know him? Yeah. Yeah. And just reading about uh the his second book which is about healing, ritual and community. And just this essentialness of village and community, and you know how how di- you know how different it is being raised in the Western world in a nuclear family. You know, and certainly if you were born in the '60s or the '70s, there's no church, there's no nothing, there's no connection. And now we have this thing called social media, which is a promise of community in some ways, and there is connection in it in some ways. I, I really find psyche it to be fascinating how psyche's created this new conversation we're having and yet um there's nothing like being in community in retreat presence with other bodies um that you can't get in social media you, mm. you just can't get it um so yeah but our are searching for connection through this through this technology and uh, and yet here we are using this technology today to connect and have this conversation so what a blessing that is yeah
0: it's it's yeah, the light and the dark are, are in this yeah. big time, huh?
1: Big time, big yeah. time.
0: But I'll tell you, we did a an online course just now called Alchemy of Love, Ramdas meditations through our Love Server Member Foundation. And maybe there was like eleven thousand people who wow. took this thing. Yeah. And but they created our our people created a, a Facebook group. So people could, cause they want people, we want to dialogue with each other. And there was yes. half the people, maybe not quite, but uh, four or 5,000 people certainly yeah. were on that. And I, I just saw some of the inter exchanges between people. It was, it fulfilled some of what we're talking about. That's it. Sure.
1: It does. It, ha- it can absolutely done. Yeah. You know, it, it, it can. Um, yeah. I agree.
0: So we're kind of at the end of our hour here. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, Dove Soap is saying we can't talk anymore. I don't know. Whoever <laughs> said that is It's so stupid. Uh, and and Kelly, uh, you people, Kelly. I don't. I mean, you have a podcast. I know that's still.
1: Yeah, it's been on pause. Um, oh, I'm going to start. I'm going to start in the new year again. It's called "Waking from the American Dream." There's over 140 episodes up. I started it in like 2010, I think I started, Mm. I can't even remember, 2011, a couple years after my dad died. And it's, it's from a line my dad had said about, you know, um, uh, something about, um, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe in it. (laughs) And okay. so, our
0: uh, are, are guy's doing show notes for this. So there you go. There's, a there,
1: there's the, the there Yeah, there's one you okay. can play. And so, I was so inspired by that line that I wanted to talk about waking up in all forms. Mm. So, part of it's about America, but it's really waking up in all forms. Right. So, I have right. a podcast. Yeah. And I have a serious XM show, uh, the Kelly Carlin mm. show that I interview comedians on, which mm. lately we've been drilling down very deep. And I just did a half hour or an hour with Jeff. Foxworthy,
0: oh, really? who on oh, paper
1: cool. we probably have very little to talk about, and yet we had a profound, profound conversation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. It's amazing that we can find commonality somewhere in 80, any situation.
1: I say eighty-five percent of uh, even the person on the most extreme political poll of Europe, you'll eighty-five percent we have in common because we're just humans.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. Eighty-five. So.
1: Another that 15
0: has yeah. become a bit of a problem, but it's okay.
1: It's a little problem, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so uh, kellycarlin.com?
1: Yeah, kellycarlin.com. You can find there all my go. stuff there, my women's yep. coaching stuff and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay, great. But And I'm on Twitter. Find me on Twitter. I just <laughs> left Facebook. I'm done with Instagram.
0: Facebook. You got to get on an Instagram. And
1: I'm on Instagram too, yeah. so come okay. find me. I'll so. Find
0: me. Okay, one uh, just one more thing from George if, uh, that's uh, from the book that is so great. Um, it's from his show, The Planet is Fine. Right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. planet is fine. The people are fucked. The <laughs> planet's been through a lot worse than us, been through all kinds of things worse than us, been through earthquakes, volcanoes, plate tectonics, continental drift, solar flares, sunspots, magnetic storms, the magnetic reversal of the poles, hundreds of thousands of years of bombardment by comets and asteroids and meteors, worldwide floods, tidal waves, worldwide fires, erosion, cosmic rays, recurring ice ages. And we think some plastic bags and some aluminum cans are going to make a difference? The planet, the planet, the planet isn't going anywhere. And in we are yeah. only he could have said of course we'll get flack back about Well
1: things. and and he got flack for that too. Yeah, I bet uh, the environmentalists <laughs> yeah. really came down on him for that. And his point was that the yuppies, the the people who had started the Earth The forgotten
0: yuppies, yeah.
1: Yes, they'd turned into the greedy yuppies and uh they only wanted to save the planet for their own convenience.
0: Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, yeah, I've, I've actually talked about this in very subject with people who are uh, very, uh, been doing environment, environmental work for a long, long time. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's a whole other podcast we can do Kelly.
1: It is about that. Yeah. (laughs) Which
0: yeah, maybe we should one day. So great to meet you, Kelly Carlin. And, uh, we hope to see you soon.
1: I Uh hope to see you in Ojai. Yes, Um, you're going to
0: come out here for sure. We're going to get you out here. You're
1: right up the road from me, so I will come and see you.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. uh, Check out show notes and you'll be able to get Kelly's book uh, because there'll be a lovely link there. And uh, also George's, uh, we'll figure out which book, whoever's going to be doing this, I'm sure is going to say, I like this. George book, better than that. So you can put whatever you want. And linking up to Kelly. And again, thank you so much for being on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. I still like the thing where George found the <laughs> flow in Be Here Now. Okay. I'm, I'm going to believe. You. We shouldn't it's, have even said that. It's true.
1: It's true. Of course, it's true. <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, we'll see you next week on BeHereNowNetwork.com on Mind Rolling. Bye bye i um, uh.